Testaments, Genesis chapter 11, starting from verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Sechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. 
So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. This is God's word. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Very nice to see you. My name is Pete Snow. I'm assistant minister here. You might be wondering what all that was about, Abraham, Sarah, Pharaoh, all that stuff. I'll explain. Let's pray, shall we? Almighty God, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we come to you today. We want to know what this means in your word and what it means for our lives today. We know your word has everything we need for life and godliness, so we pray that you'd um, prove that promise again this morning. We pray it by the power of the Spirit, through the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. One of the uh, TV pleasures I have when I get a a little night off and you know you look through the TV and think what's on tonight, Um, I'm going to enjoy this, hopefully there's something good on, Um, Grand Designs. You've seen that one, sort of Channel 4 show, I'm going to get a fist pump at the back, someone's very keen. Uh, Grand Designs, I think, terrific, that's on. And I was watching one recently where, um, you know, there's this uh, derelict plot or there's nothing there and they're going to turn it into the most incredible architectural house the world has ever seen, or at least they think so. Sometimes you think, what the heck is that? Uh, I came across one in South London, a grand design. They didn't tell me exactly where. I thought it looked like Clapham, but anyway. Um, there was this row of terraced houses, very nice houses, and a gap, and then there were more terraced houses all lining up as terraced houses do. And in the gap, I don't know, I guess maybe a bomb fell on, on it during the war, and there was no more house there in this house-sized gap. There was an old workshop, you know, a few iron rafters, uh, some corrugated plastic, and then just a sort of workshop shed at the back. You see these things around sometimes in London. And as they do on Grand Designs, there were these enthusiastic couple, and they thought, this is our dream house. We can see it. It's going to be fantastic. We are going to live in this gap. And Kevin MacLeod, presenter, goes, all right, how are you going to do that then? And you know, as, as the hour unfolds, you get to see all the, all the chaos and the financial shortfall. And uh, eventually... Somewhat miraculously, they pull out this rather beautiful house which has a courtyard in the gap and a house at the back and it's all luxury living and it's cost them millions of pounds because it's in South London and they had to build it from scratch. And Why didn't you just go and buy a house somewhere else? (laughs) But they were living in the gap. We're coming to uh, Genesis chapter 11 onwards in our sermon series for the next month or so and we've called the series uh, Living in the Gap Between Promise and and reality. It might seem a bit of a funny place to start uh, chapter 11, verse 27. You might have thought, well, we'll at least start at chapter 12. But actually, did you notice how it starts? I'd love you to have the Bible open here. Chapter 11, 27 says, this is the account of Terah's family line, on page 13. And that, that uh, sort of formula happens 10 times in Genesis. This is the account of so-and-so's family line. Uh, and so it's the way the author has of saying, right, that was the last story, here's the next generation, let's go. So actually it's where the author of Genesis would want us to start. It's after Babel, Tower of Babel, it's after the flood, and it's after the Garden of Eden. Now, incidentally, we're starting back here because this is where the home groups left off in the summertime. So um, you remember that? If you're in a home group, you dredge your mind back. Oh, yes, we did actually finish here. So we're sort of picking it up. We'll go for a month. 
We'll come back to Abraham in the new year, I expect. We're living in the gap between promise and reality. Of course, Abraham's not the only guy in the Bible who ever lives in the gap between uh, promise and reality. There's, well, every biblical character who's ever had faith was that guy or that girl. Uh, Abraham is, however, the example par excellence, I think. As I hope to show you, he was the guy who was given just a, a deluge of promises. It's like God just unleashed not everything all at once, but like a torrent of, this is what I'm going to do for you, and it's going to be incredible, and it's going to work out all over the world. And Abraham was like, whoa, that's a lot of promises. And yet the gap was incredibly wide for him because he had nothing, much, as we'll see. So every, every believer lives in the gap. I think it's quite encouraging to look at Abraham in that light because he lives in a big gap, as we'll see. Right, just by way of introduction, this last bit of chapter 11, do you see how ordinary Abraham is? I think it's rather encouraging actually to realize that he had ordinary sadnesses in an ordinary place, he had ordinary skeletons in the closet and ordinary hopes. You might have just noticed them as Sarah was reading. Uh, Verse 28, while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. So he's got ordinary sadness in his life. One of the brothers dies early. Oh, nobody wanted that. So he's an ordinary bloke in that respect. He also lives in an ordinary place, this place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which quite pleasingly sounds very ordinary, doesn't it? Ur. Uh, Where do you live? Uh, I live in the great city of uh, Oh, I can't wait to visit. Fantastic. If, if you um, just keep a finger in the passage, you turn to the front inside cover of your Bible, you can see uh, it's, it's there. Directly on the inside cover, bottom right-hand corner, do you see? Uh, and I think we have a map of it here on the screen, uh, which is probably too small for you to read. But here, here is uh, and the dotted line goes all the way up, this is what Abraham does uh, in chapter 11, and he gets to near the top of the ark, which is a place called Haran. You see that? You probably can't read it on the screen, but you can probably see it in your Bibles. So he goes from Ur in his ordinary place, and he sets out. Ordinary sadness, ordinary place. He's also got some ordinary skeletons in the closet. If you turn back to Genesis 11, verse 29... Abram and Nahor, both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran. If you read between the lines there and you sort of draw out the family tree, uh, the guy married his sister, half-sister. They they shared a father. But, oh, uh, um, a few scandals in the family then, you know, a few things that we might think that's a bit odd and raise an eyebrow about it. Perhaps a skeleton in the closet. Ordinary bloke. Um, And finally, he's got some ordinary hopes. He sets out on this long journey because he's got aspirations for his family. I hope you find that rather encouraging. Abraham is the guy that Judaism and Christianity is built on. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you're off. Abraham was just an ordinary bloke, though. He lived in an ordinary place. He had an ordinary family. And as we'll go on to see God makes some extraordinary promises to him. That's what marked him out as really, really special. Ordinary chap. Right, so what about these extraordinary promises? Uh, Abraham wasn't born with a, a cape, but the God who gave him promises was a superhero. I've got one main thing to tell you today, which is the Lord 
promises to bless Abram. That's it. It's very simple. And then we'll see that two things flow from it. So one main thing, the Lord promises to bless Abram. And this is all just in the three verses at the start of chapter 12. Let's have a look. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see it's put there in sort of poetic form on a page, as if to say, look, this is something significant. This is God saying something very deliberate to Abram. And do you notice, just before we get into the content of anything, God says, I will, a lot. Five times by my count. Verse one, I will show you the land. Verse two, I will make you a great nation. Verse three, I will make your name great. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. I think there might be six actually by my count. There you go. Uh, More than I even thought. In uh, Genesis one to 11, curses are pronounced five times. So the word curse is unleashed five times after Genesis chapter three. And uh, here it is almost as if God is saying, I know the world is cursed. I know you've messed it up, human race. And now hear my promises. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. When Sarah and I do marriage prep with um, couples who are about to get married, it's always one of the preliminaries that we start with. What are the marriage vows? And um, sometimes people say, ah, I do. You know, that's what Hollywood would have us believe. You stand at the front of church and you said, I do. For some reason, that line is always in the films, isn't it? And then we point out, no, well, the marriage vow is actually, I will, which is a much weightier promise because I do is a bit pathetic. You know, uh, well, how long does that vow last for? It's just a present tense. If you say, I will, and you promise that to somebody else, ah, well, that's something for the future. I'm promising something that's going to last and last and last. I will. And here, God shows up to an ordinary guy and says, I will. What then does God say I will to? That rather matters, doesn't it? It it could be something, it could be nothing. Well, think about it as a quad promise here. Uh, We've got land, we've got descendants, there's a blessing to Abram, and there's a blessing to others. It's it's four things all wrapped up together in an incredible package. If you're interested, Genesis 3 verse 8 would refer to this in the New Testament as the gospel. So it looks back on what God says here at the beginning of the Bible and says that is the gospel. In other words, I take it... You can take these three verses and say, oh, well, that's everything I need to know to be a believer. It's like the core of it all, the gospel. Obviously, there's more to learn. You want the name of Jesus Christ in there, if at all possible, but that's what the New Testament would call it. This is the prototype gospel. So here we go. Um, Land, that's there in verse one, isn't it? Go from your country to the land I will show you. I'm promising you this place. Obviously, it's so early in the Bible that there is no Canaan, no Israel, no promised land, no Jerusalem. So God is saying, I'm going to give you all that. I'm going to give you a land. Second part of the quad promise, he says, I'm going to give you descendants, or as we would have it in verse two, a great nation. That's tricky, because we've already learned in chapter 11 that there are no children. Sarah is not able to have children. So God saying, I'm going to give you a nation coming after you in your family tree is problematic at this stage but I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you those descendants. I'm going to give you uh, a blessing, Abram. That's the third thing, a blessing to you. And that is your name is going to be great at the end of verse two and you will be a blessing. 
That is, that God's favor was going to rest on Abram in such a physical way that people would be able to tell in the Old Testament that his reputation was great and his possessions were great. We'll come back to that. Land, descendants, blessing to you and Abram. As if that wasn't enough, I'm going I'm to spread this blessing out all over the world so that all the nations of the world can be blessed through you. You're going to be the channel through which I pour that kindness. All of which um, I can imagine must have been a bit baffling if you're Abram. And then he goes to Sarai later and says, you're never going to guess what God told me. Uh, And they scratch their heads together and say, what the heck? How on earth is this ever going to happen? They're living in the gap between promise and reality. How is this ever going to become this? And what I want to say to you about the great story of Abram and... What is so encouraging here is that the gap, making up the gap between promise and reality doesn't depend on Abram. They might well be left there scratching their heads living in the gap. It depends on the one making the promise. Imagine if you will, uh, you sit down in a coffee shop one day, perhaps you get a moment to yourself and you go to a coffee shop, you order your chai latte or whatever it is and you, it's a bit crowded so you have to share one of those tables with another person a bit awkward oh, would you mind if I no fine thank you very much and you sit down next to this um, opposite this girl who is in a bit of a daydream and um, you notice after a while that she is staring at an engagement ring and she's sort of looking at it wistfully and <sighs> sighing about this thing and uh, clearly a bit taken up with her reverie and you say to her oh uh, I see you're engaged. Is that an engagement ring? Oh, yes, yes, yes it is. (sighs) And you say, you seem a bit glum. And she says, oh, well, yes, I was given this by my fiancé. He's been gone for five years, but um, we met one night. And after a whirlwind romance, he gave me this ring. He got it from Argos. And he spent 30 pounds on it. And he gave it to me before he went traveling around the world to see the world. Um, And he told me he'd be back one day. And you say, oh, five years? Have you heard from him? And she says, oh, yes. Sent me a Facebook message once, just, you know, with a few holiday shots. Didn't ask me about myself, but, you know, he, he was there around the world traveling. But he did say that time he'd be back. He'd be back, and he, he promised that he'd come and marry me. Oh, I think I might go away from that conversation thinking, that guy sounds like a loser. That guy sounds like a guy who's not intending to keep his promises. 30 quid? Five years? You're kidding me. You could rewind the conversation. Imagine you sit down, you've got your drink, you sit down at the table, and please may I sit here? Yes, okay. <sighs> Engagement ring. She's in a daydream. You say, are you engaged? Oh, yes. Uh, um, oh, right, tell me about your fiancé. Ah, oh, well, I met him five years ago. He gave me this engagement ring. I mean, we were skint students at the time. We hardly had a bean, but he went out and he spent everything he had in his bank account on this thing from Argos, and then he had to go away with the army. Five years. He's been on this enormous tour. He's had to be in the army for five years, but he writes to me every week. He writes to me. He asks all about me. We know everything about each other's lives. He's the one, and uh, he's coming back at the end of this tour. We're going to get married. I think I'd go away from that conversation thinking... That sounds like an honorable man. That sounds like something that's going to work out. Why do I tell you that? Well, it depends on the promise giver, doesn't it? 
Same situation, same girl, sighing, looking at the same ring, but two different men on the other end of it. If you're living in the gap, then it depends on the promise giver, not so much on the ring or even on the girl. Objection, somebody might say, well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Nice story, but religion often feels like you're living in a gap without a wonderful fiancé. You know, a lot of the time it feels like long periods of silence, little contact, not very much love being shown. Yes, I sympathize. I think I would want to remember for myself just three things, the, the plot, the profits, and the price of the ring. So briefly, uh, I'd want to remember the, prot, the, 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 prot, the plot as I talk to myself. Uh, I'd want to remember the plot, that is, the romance that I'm involved in with God is not one that he thought is, let me get this right, uh, the romance that God is involved with with me shouldn't be one that he should have chased after. I mean, you know that if you read Genesis 1 to 11. Five curses poured out on the human race and he's still interested. The plot says God should have given up a long time ago. You know, we're done, it's over. But he hasn't given up. So that's the plot. Uh, secondly, I want to remember for myself the prophets, which are, if you like, God's love letters to his people. You know, he writes to them again and again and again. This is about 2000 BC here. And the prophets carry on writing for 1550 years, again and again and again. Do you remember what I've promised you? Do you remember where this is heading? Do you remember my covenant with you, which we'll get to the Abraham story? And um, you remember that I love you. Don't stray. I'd want to remember the prophets with their love letters as well as the plot. And finally, the, the price. Of course, that's the high point of the whole story. God doesn't just buy a, a meager, cheap engagement present. He gives his finest diamond, the sort of diamond that was chiseled out of heaven. It was the most precious thing that the universe could have afforded because it was God incarnate, chiseled out of heaven by God's side and come to die for us. He says, how about this of a token of my affections? I'll give you that. You're living in the gap. I do think that makes a difference, the plot, the profits, and the price. And it's all wrapped up in these six I wills. I will do it. Okay, that's it. That's, that's what I wanted to say to you. The main thing, the Lord promises to bless Abraham. Isn't it fantastic? If you're living in the gap, I think it makes all the difference in the world. And just notice with me the two things that flow out of it. First of all, faith goes and second of all, faith fails. Faith goes, faith fails. So first of all, verses four to nine, faith goes. Just have a look, verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So Abram went. Did you catch that? Incredible promises, all wrapped up in six I wills, a quad promise, and Abram went. It's rather beautifully simple, isn't it? Faith goes. Okay, I see how good this is. I register cognitively and emotionally what an incredible situation I find myself in because of your promises and because of Jesus Christ. Faith goes as a response. 
Do you notice that um, he stops off at three places in the coming verses? So verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the great site of the, of the side of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. So that's the first place in the north. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel. So that's the second place, roughly in the middle of the promised land. And pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev, which is in the south. So north, central, south. And what does he do in two of the places? He built an altar. Now, I don't suppose there were any specific instructions. It doesn't sound like it. Um, I'm going to make you these incredible promises. Go and build an altar over there. It doesn't seem like he had those specifics. But what Abram does is um, his faith goes, goes to the land where he's been told to, and he does something. Does something. He builds an altar. Uh, it seems like what he's doing when he builds these two altars is sort of claiming the land for God. So he says, "I'll put one there. I'll put one there. I'm going to mark the territory. This is what God's told me gonna ha- that is going to happen. So I'm going to do something physical to say, okay, I believe it.'" And his faith goes. I remember when I was at um, university as an undergrad. I was, a, I was a keen Christian, basically for the first time in my life. And um, I had my gospel outline that I'd memorized, my way of explaining Christianity to people. And I was looking for opportunities to sort of unload it on people and deliver it to them in a monologue. And uh, I found myself in a pub one time in my university town and um, I got talking to this American guy and uh, I sensed an opportunity to download my monologue. Uh, and so when he stopped for breath, out it came. And uh, I remember him stopping me halfway through and saying, dude, dude, in his American accent, um, you sound like a robot. And uh, I was a bit wounded by this. This wasn't part of the plan. And the the train came off the tracks a little bit, and eventually the conversation ended, and off he went. Um, As I reflected on that over the years, dude, you sound like a robot. Uh, I thought to myself, oh, yes, I probably did. I think he's right. I was just downloading on him my pre-prepared monologue. And would I do it differently now? Yes, I would. I would. I'm a bit older. I think I'm, I, I can be myself a bit more. You know, I still believe the gospel, but I'm, I feel free to deliver it with my personality. And would I do it again, given the chance? Yes. Yes, absolutely. If I had the same situation, I think I'd do it slightly differently, but I'd do it again. I want him to hear the gospel. Because faith goes. You know, I, I'd rather do something rather than nothing. I'd rather have a start in obedience than do nothing. A faith that responds to God's promises honors the promiser in that way. It says to God, look, I haven't got everything worked out. I don't know all the answers here. I don't know everything to say or all the specifics of what I'm supposed to do. But you're amazing. The promises are incredible. I'll have a go. My wife told me a story recently that appeared on Facebook uh, about a Valentine's surprise last year. And um, one of her friends was um, gushing on Facebook because a boyfriend had surprised her at the airport with the most incredible surprise Valentine's trip to some incredible romantic destination. What he'd done was say, look, um, I've booked you a surprise. Come to the airport and meet me, and I'm going to take you somewhere amazing. So after work, she gets there. She gets to the airport. She doesn't even know. um, He manages to keep it a secret when they're in the gate, you know, in the, and they're boarding, so she doesn't know where they're going until they get on the plane. It struck us as we heard that story, oh, that's, a, that's a really romantic story, if you trust the boyfriend. <laughs> Isn't it? 
I mean, if, if he's, you know, the best boyfriend that's ever been in the world, then what a, what a brilliant thing. I'll, go, I'll get on the plane. Fantastic. I trust you. If you've got a bit of a bounder and a cad, you know, some loser who isn't really doing well in the relationship stakes, then I'm not going to the airport with you. No. No, no way. I'm not getting on a plane with you to some mysterious destination. It depends on the promise giver. But if the promise giver is good, then faith goes to the airport. Faith makes a start. So I suppose in our lives, faith goes and obeys God in the more difficult areas of obedience, doesn't it? When, when God makes demands on my purse strings and talks about money, well, faith makes a start. When, when God says things about sex and marriage and relationships that I find uncomfortable at first, well, it depends on the promise giver and faith goes and faith makes a start. When God says things about church and the demands that the, the fellowship make on me, then Faith goes and faith makes a start, even though I don't understand all the details yet. Faith goes and looks for opportunities to speak the word of God boldly, even when I can't imagine the person coming to faith or see how all the details are going to work out. Faith goes into the dark corners of a city like London, looks for opportunities to preach the gospel, looks for opportunities to do church graphs, and says, I have no idea how all these details are going to work out. I know the promises, I know the promise giver, I'll go and make a start. Faith looks at the ungodliness in the office and thinks, I've got no idea how I'm going to get through today. But I'll go, I'll make a start. And I know the promise giver. Faith goes. And second implication, faith fails in this story. Verses 10 to 20, faith fails. See what happens. So we're on a bit of a high. Everything seems to be going well, doesn't it? And then you get to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. So poor Abram's got his family there, or his wife and his servants, um, and they're hungry. And the famine's not going away. It seems to be getting more and more severe. Another poor harvest. And so he goes to Egypt. Now in biblical terms... Never a cracking idea to go down to Egypt, as we learn as the plot unfolds. So, uh uh-oh, warning sign. Uh, But he goes to Egypt. Should he have stayed? Maybe. I don't think we're told. If he had stayed, would God have still worked out his promises? Definitely. Definitely. What I think Abraham might have needed to do was to mind the gap. He needed to mind the gap in the sort of TFL tube network way. Mind the gap. He needed to mind the gap. He's in the gap between promise and reality. He's got reasons for for faith failing because in the gap, life is really hard and he hasn't got enough food in his hand to feed himself or his household. Indeed, he hasn't just got not enough food. He's got no land. It hasn't been given to him yet. There's other people living there. He's got no descendants because his wife is still childless. He's got no obvious blessing because there's no food. And he's got no blessing to others because he can't even get his own household in order. So you can appreciate the guy's discomfort. He goes down to Egypt. So in other words, he's got nothing. And he comes up with this curious solution once he's there. Okay, verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Thank you, darling. Yes, uh, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you're my sister so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. 
strange solution to come up with, isn't it? Sort of put your wife, just push her forward into the firing line in order that you might save your own skin. There is a grain of truth in it because if, as we read on through the Genesis story, and we'll get there, chapter 20, verse 12, we discover she is his half-sister. She also was from the same father. I think it was Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. So actually, was it a flat-out lie? I don't think so. Was it unwise? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Pretty sure that's not an honorable way to treat your wife. What were you up to, Abraham? Well, I think he was scared. All the context seems to the point of the fact that he was scared. He goes down to Egypt because there's a famine. He hasn't got enough food. He's scared of not having enough food. He gets to Egypt and he sees Pharaoh's palaces and the, the grandest king in all the ancient world. And he sees the armies ranged and the big pyramids and everything there in front of him. And I think he gets scared. And he says, oh, crumbs, I can't get out of this one without sinning. We better come up with something here. His faith fails for fear, if you like. I wonder whether in the gap between promise and reality, our faith fails for fear when we look at the meager resources in our own hands and we think, oh, I'm scared. Oh, God hasn't given me enough to get the job done here. Oh, fear. And our faith fails. I think faith fails, obviously, when you ride through the streets of Egypt and you look at the massive pyramids and the armies and you think, oh, I'm scared. I'm going to need to come up with something uh, God's forbidden here to get me out of this one. I think faith fails when you look